So it is a journal, but it's already recording, or I should say it is recording a transaction that has already occurred. And we know it's occurred because we properly declared the dividend by June 30. You are listening to Australia's podcast for accountants, Tax Talks, the podcast to grow your firm. Welcome to episode 260 of Tax Talks. This is Heide Robson and thank you to Class for sponsoring this episode. When a company gives a Division 7A loan to a shareholder, the shareholder often doesn't have the cash to make the minimum yearly repayments. So the solution to this problem is a Division 7A dividend. The company declares a dividend and then you offset this obligation on the company side to pay the dividend with the obligation on the shareholder side to make minimum yearly repayments. And you do this via a journal entry. And the journal entry as such is not the problem. The problem is timing, as Robin Jacobson of the Tax Institute will tell you. You met Robin before she spoke about how Australian tax law is made in episode 145 and 146 in June 2019, last year. Since then, Robin joined the Tax Institute as senior advocate, and she has also won a number of awards, which I will ask her about after the interview. So here's Robin Jacobson, senior advocate of the Tax Institute, about the timing issue around Division 7A dividends. To set the scene, whenever a private company lends money to a shareholder or an associate of a shareholder, we have rules which we loosely call Division 7A, but it's Division 7A in Part 3 of the 1936 Tax Act. And as many practitioners know, these rules basically set out prescribed rules about how that loan should be managed. And in the event that that loan is not managed properly, then the amount of the loan is treated as a deemed dividend. Now, one of the requirements for managing a loan to prevent it becoming a deemed dividend is that there is a written loan agreement. There is a finite term of seven years, 25 years if it's secured by real property. And the third major requirement is that there is a minimum yearly repayment. Now, this minimum yearly repayment has to be made by June 30 each year of that seven-year loan term. I'll just talk about the seven-year loans for, for coverage of all the loans. Now, this minimum yearly repayment comprises a principal reduction so that if you stick to that schedule, you'll have the whole loan paid off within the seven-year term. And it includes the requisite amount of interest that is charged at the relevant benchmark interest rate. Now, in an ideal world, you simply have a cash payment coming from the shareholder every year back to the company. Whether the interest is deductible to the shareholder depends on what they're using the funds for. So normal interest rules, if it's being used for a taxable purpose, the interest would be deductible to the shareholder. The interest will always be accessible to the company because it's simply interest income. Now that's the ideal world where you make a cash payment, but in the majority of cases, the shareholder doesn't necessarily have the cash to make that minimum yearly repayment back to the company. So a dividend is often used where a journal entry to record that dividend is put through and then that is treated as the minimum yearly repayment. Now, that's the simple theory of it, but as the article that I wrote in Accountants Daily and as we'll discuss further today, 
there are lots of nuances to this and you've got to get all your, your ducks lined up in a row because if you don't do things correctly, then the purported journal to record that dividend is ineffective. And if it's ineffective, then the minimum yearly repayment is taken not to be made and that means that there would be a deemed dividend for the amount of the shortfall, the payment that wasn't made for the given year. Is it particularly for dividend payments by journal entry where it, this is an issue? Well, let's break that down. If you're making a cash payment back to the company, there is no need for a dividend because what you are doing is paying the money back to the company that is required under the law each year. So a cash payment will simply reduce the loan and accordingly be reported as interest um, for that element of the repayment. So there is no dividend and no documentation for dividends that comes into it when you're making a cash payment back to the company. It's simply like making a repayment of a loan back to the bank is, yes. is the equivalent. I meant an extra cash dividend. Okay, so if you're going to use a cash dividend, then it would be very unusual for a company to pay a cash dividend for that cash to be used by the shareholder to make the repayment. The whole point of using a dividend is you generally don't have the cash. And there would be few companies, in my experience, that would actually declare a cash dividend from the company to the shareholder, where the shareholder would then use that cash to pay the repayment back to the company for the minimum yearly repayment. Um, yes, in theory, that could happen. I haven't particularly seen that in my career. Neither have I. But if this is how it happened, then timing and documentation, etc., wouldn't be as crucial. Of course, you still need... No, no I, I disagree. It's still yeah. as important because there are still dates we have to meet. And I'm going to run through all of these, but where a dividend is declared and paid, it is still important to have that timing adhered to, to make sure it's an effective dividend. Now, it would be very unusual to have that paid in cash form and then, as I said, repaid back to the company. But the same rules would apply for that sort of a dividend as the one that we're talking about in a moment, which is using the pure journal entry where no cash changes hands. All right, well, the most important thing to start with is that if there is going to be the use of a dividend to make a minimum yearly repayment, there has to be what we call the principle of mutual set-off. Now, to explain what this means, let's say, Heidi, I lend you $100, but you've already lent me $150 previously. Now, we've got liabilities we owe to each other. I owe you $100, you owe me $150. Now, you might pay me the $150, and then I use that cash to immediately pay $100 back to you. But what we could do is a contra. And in that case, you would just pay me the $50 and we call it quits. Now, where the dollars are equal, if I owe you $100 and you owe me $100, we agree that we're going to apply those liabilities against each other. So, no cash changes hands at all because the two obligations that we owe to each other are being applied against each other. So, that is the critical concept here because if you don't have a mutual set-off, none of this works anyway. Now, the commissioner talks about mutual set-off in the context of an FBT ruling and it's actually a miscellaneous tax ruling MT2050. And at paragraph six of that ruling MT2050, the commissioner does accept that a journal can constitute a payment, but only where you do have these mutual obligations owing to each other. So if we apply this context into 
the Div 7A scenario, we already have an obligation that the shareholder owes the company. That is, by June 30 of each year, they have to make a payment back to the company. So that obligation already exists. What we need to do is create a mutual obligation, one that the company owes the shareholder, so that the two obligations can be applied against each other. It doesn't necessarily need to be the shareholder who owes the money because it's, it's just any related entity that owes the money for the Division 7A well, loan. Well, this is where you've got to be really careful because whilst Div 7A applies to loans made by private companies to shareholders or their associates, it is not possible for a dividend to be declared by a company to someone who's not a shareholder. Exactly. And that's where you get the triangle. So the company needs to declare a dividend to the shareholder. And then the shareholder, for example, contributes the funds by journal entry to a trust, for example. If we assume that the trust, for example, is the other party to the Division 7A loan agreement, and then the trust would make the payments. Well, you need to be very, very careful because effectively you are assigning rights and obligations and there are a lot of legal consequences to what you're suggesting. I am very wary when it comes to what we call a, a triangle, if you like, so three parties involved. What I'm explaining as a basic concept is simply the shareholder owing the money back okay. to the company and the company using a dividend to make that repayment. Whereas a third party involves someone who is not a shareholder, but someone who's an associate of a shareholder who's borrowed the money, you need to be very, very careful because they still have the obligation to make the minimum yearly repayment, but it can be very tricky actually using a dividend. In fact, some lawyers may say that it's not possible to use a dividend for a non-shareholder to use that amount to pay back to make the minimum yearly repayment. Do you mind if I just quickly ask you more about this? Because it takes me by surprise that this could be an issue because I've seen it quite often that the company loans money to a, a trust, but the company is actually owned by a separate shareholder. They are all related. And then the repayments are just always coming through dividend to the shareholder. And then the shareholder contributes the funds to the trust and then the trust makes the payments. I don't see why this would be an issue. Because if we're going to use a journal entry to make a minimum yearly repayment, there must be a mutual obligation. The trust, let's say who's the one who's borrowed the money, who's not a shareholder, has an obligation to pay the company. What obligation does the company have to the trust? There is none. So you're taking an amount that is owed to the shareholder. And yes, everything can be done via journal. And I say that very tongue in cheek. Anyone can put through debits and credits, but they must be supported by underlying transactions. They must be supported by mutual obligations. Otherwise, a journal does not constitute a payment. And just whacking through a journal to say, well, I've now lent you the money and now that money gets used by the trust to the company, I have concerns about that being legally effective. The company has a receivable against the trust. The trust has a payable against the company. If That's now not a mutual obligation. A mutual obligation means the trust owes the company and the company owes the trust an amount. And you apply those two obligations against each other. It doesn't mean that there's a debit on one side and a credit on the other in two different entities. I got you. Okay. So I know that what you're describing is common. There are a number of accountants who over the years have just put through journals to clean these loans up or to make repayments. I am questioning the legal effectiveness of that because a journal can only be used where there is a mutual obligation by two parties to each other where those obligations get offset against each other. 
So my concern is where the trust owes the company, there is no mutual obligation where the company owes the trust an amount that can be used via a journal to reduce that minimum yearly repayment obligation. Okay, so that means the solution in this scenario would be to actually have payments. Dealer, so that the yes. company actually pays out the cash to the shareholder, the shareholder actually pays the cash to the trust, and then the trust pays the cash back to the company. Ideally, but then what you're now creating is a loan between the individual and the trust. And it is possible that the commissioner could even say that there's a 109T issue here where money has been paid by a company to a shareholder and then that or an intermediary even if you want to call it an interposed entity and that can include a dividend payment and then that money has been on lent to an associate or a shareholder. So you've got to be careful about what it looks like when the shareholder to use the word loosely, passes the money on to the trust. I see. You can't book it as a capital contribution? Potentially, but there's still a, a risk that 109T could be applied where money has come out from a company to a associate of a shareholder using the 109T provision. I it's see. not one we've seen widely used by the commissioner, but the commissioner did release some guidance a couple of years ago, which indicated that where there is a Back-to-back -back payments or back-to-back -back loans, what you're referring to here is potentially a payment followed by another payment, then it is possible that notwithstanding the first payment is accessible because it is a dividend, it could still constitute a payment that allows 109T to operate. So I just mentioned that by way of caution because that could be a, a shortcoming in, in what you're describing. Can you just quickly fill me in what 109T is about? 109T is the interposed entity rule. So if you've got a company that makes a payment or a loan directly to a shareholder or an associate of a shareholder, it's vanilla Div 7A. If there's another entity in the middle, it is possible that 109T could allow the commissioner to look at the first payment or loan followed by a second payment or loan and conclude that the purpose of that arrangement was ultimately to get money from the first one out to the ultimate shareholder or associate. Good. Oh, dear. It's an integrity measure. It's to stop people getting around the rules. So it would be interesting to um, explore that perhaps in another discussion or, or yes. if the commissioner had a view on whether 109T could be applied to a dividend paid by a company to a shareholder that is then on lent or contributed or paid onto another entity that is an associate that actually ultimately owes the minimum yearly repayment back to the company. It's an interesting question. Okay, good. So we put this triangle aside. Yes. Because it's actually more tricky than I expected. And so now we just talk about a very simple setup where the company has a Division 7A agreement with the shareholder. Correct. So in that case, we have the shareholder owing money to the company. We now have to create an obligation that the company owes the shareholder. And the way to do that through the use of a journal is to create the obligation to pay a dividend. Now, we go back to the basic Div 7A rule. By what date does the shareholder have to make the minimum yearly repayment? They need to do that by June 30 each year. So that means we need to have an obligation that the company owes the shareholder created by that date so that we can apply the two obligations against each other. The obligation to make the minimum yearly repayment is applied against the obligation of the company to pay the dividend. Now, in order to do that, we need to validly declare a dividend by June 30. Now, this is delving into Corporations Act issues, and I'm certainly no expert on the corpse law, but by way of general comments, the way that a dividend is declared is the companies will either have a meeting or they will make a decision. 
Now, the way they record their decisions is through documentation referred to as minutes or resolutions. Now, I still think there's a bit of confusion out there about when you use each of these documents and what they mean. A minute is only used in one situation. There is a company that has more than one director, so there must be two or more directors to have a minute, and they hold a meeting of those directors. Now, maybe we could call it a Zoom meeting at the moment. You'd have to check under perhaps Corpse Law and the company constitution whether an online virtual meeting is acceptable. But if we just go back to traditional concepts, you would have a physical meeting of directors and that would constitute um, a decision being made at that meeting, which is recorded in a minute. Okay, so if you have a sole shareholder, you don't need a meeting and you don't need minutes. Be careful with your wording, not sole shareholder, sole director. Oh, so okay. if there is a sole director, they cannot have a meeting. It is not possible for someone to meet with themselves. So by definition, a sole director company, it would be a resolution, not a minute. The other situation where you have a resolution, not a minute, is where there are, or I should say there is more than one director of a company, so two or more directors, but they don't hold a meeting. Instead, they have what's called a circulating resolution. So they decide that they're going to take certain action that is recorded in a circulating resolution and it's not valid until the last director signs it. If it's a sole director company, clearly by um, signing it, that's their own decision. They don't need to circulate it to anybody else. Now, there are certain dates that apply in the Corporations Act as to when you need to prepare this documentation by. It's Section 251, capital A of the Corporations Act that where a dividend is declared, and that is then reflected in a director's minute or resolution, it must be filed in the corporate register within one month of the meeting or the decision being made as the case may be. So if you think about public companies, they meet every month, they hold a meeting, decisions are made. At the next month's meeting, they then review and approve the minutes which record the decisions made at the previous meeting. And then the decisions made at the next meeting are recorded in minutes that are later prepared and they are then adopted at the subsequent meeting. So you've got this one month period following a decision being made or a meeting being held to record the decisions that were made at that meeting or in that decision process. So you've got one month from when you make a decision to record that in the corporate register. That means no later than 31 July because that would be one month from when the decision would have to be made on June 30. Two questions. This is all about the directors. It, the shareholders have no say in it. The resolutions, the minutes, everything, it's just the directors, not the shareholders. Correct, because shareholders don't declare dividends. Shareholders receive dividends through profit distributions, but they're not the ones who decide to declare a dividend. That is done by the directors of the company. Now, it might be one and the same person, uh, particularly in the SMA environment, but you wear different hats. So it's, it's a director's resolution or minute that we're preparing here. And second question, company register. Can you fill me in more about this? Because I have never seen one. You've never seen one. They're not very exciting documents. So they are typically a folder, you know, a lever arch or a, a large folder, and they are full of lots of tabs of lots of documents. So under the Corporations Act, every company must have a corporate register. It is maintained at the registered office of the company that may be the business address, it could be the tax agent's office, it could be a lawyer's address, but they will nominate a registered office address and of course that is notified to ASIC. 
The corporate register must be maintained at that location and it contains the company constitution, shareholders' resolutions, directors' resolutions, annual returns that are lodged with ASIC. It would contain the share register, so all the, uh, the details of who the shareholders are and any other associated documents. So every company, whether large or small, there is no discrimination here. Every company has a corporate register. I see. You, you just said shareholder resolution and then you said director resolution. Were you correcting yourself? Meaning yes, I was, because I there are times that shareholders will make resolutions. For example, okay. shareholders replace directors. And if a director is to be removed and appointed, um, as in appoint a new director, that would be done through a shareholder meeting or resolution. And so that also gets recorded in the corporate register. I see. So you can have shareholder resolutions, but declaring and paying of dividends, that is all in the hands of the director. So you, exactly so right. you would only have director resolutions with respect to dividends, but there might be shareholder resolutions about removing directors or other matters. Yes, it could be making changes to the constitution um, that would need to be done through a shareholder resolution as well. And there, depending what changes are made, um, is getting beyond my space, but there would be a set threshold. So you might need a majority of three quarters of the shareholders or half of them, depending what the issue is. All right, so that's the first date. We have to declare our dividend by June 30, and we then have to record that information, that decision, in a minute or resolution within one month of the meeting. So that would generally place us at the 31st of July. Then we move into tax law obligations. Because any time a company makes a frankable distribution, and we're talking about the ability to attach uh, franking credits, of course, to a vanilla dividend, then the company must provide the shareholder with a distribution statement. Now, this reference is Section 202-75 of the 97 Tax Act. So, it's 202-75. There are two different dates by which a company has to provide a dividend statement, and it depends on how large they are. Maybe I shouldn't say large. Maybe I should describe the, the type of company. If the company is a public company, then... Most people don't actually know this date, but they'll all be familiar with it. When do you get a dividend statement when you receive a public company dividend? It's by the date the distribution's paid. So when a company that is publicly listed declares a dividend, they must provide their shareholders with a distribution statement by that day. Whereas with a private company, it's a separate rule. And my experience is that very few practitioners can tell me the date by which this statement has to be provided. And yet company dividends in, a, in the private company sector are paid out all the time. So the tax law tells us that within four months after the end of the income year in which the distribution is made, and further time is allowable by the commissioner, but you need to apply for that, you must have provided the shareholder with a distribution statement. So that means by 31 October, assuming there is a June 30 year end, the company must provide a distribution statement to the shareholder. Now, a company's failure to do that would not invalidate the dividend and it may not have a Div 7A implication, but there could be penalties for failing to provide the appropriate documentation to the shareholder and that would be imposed under the tax law. And is a distribution statement or dividend statement or doesn't matter? The tax law refers to it as a distribution statement because they're can be situations where a distribution is broader than a dividend. I won't go into the detail, but tax law calls it a distribution statement, but in our language, we're talking about a dividend. I can imagine the other thing might be capital or similar. 
Yes, well, they can be capital distributions, exactly. Yes. Yes. Okay, good. So distribution statement it is. That's correct. Then we've got to post the journal. Now, with journals, uh, I know every accountant's always been taught this and probably in their first uh, class they ever had in accounting. A journal cannot create or constitute a transaction in its own right. It can only record a transaction that has already occurred. So an easy example is if a depreciating asset declines in value each year, that happens by virtue of holding the asset and using it. Now, every year we pick up a journal post year end to record the depreciation for the year just ended. It doesn't matter when you record that journal, but you'll date it June 30 because that records the decline in value of the asset for that year. What's important to note is that the transaction has actually happened. That is, the asset has already declined in value. All we're doing with the journal is recording it later. So the same applies with our dividend for Div 7A purposes. If we're going to record a dividend through a journal, simply recording the journal three, six, nine months after year end is not going to create the dividend itself. The dividend must already exist. The dividend must have been declared and all we're doing later is simply recording that transaction. Now, the journal entry, of course, as far as the company is going to be concerned, is that they're going to debit the retained profits or accumulated uh, earnings of the company. On the credit side, you're going to have a reduction of the debit loan that is owed by the shareholder and the balance amount will be the interest received and that's also credited. So it is a journal, but it's already recording, or I should say it is recording a transaction that has already occurred. And we know it's occurred because we properly declared the dividend by June 30. Now, if the declaration never happened, if that dividend documentation was never prepared and all we're doing nine months after year end is whacking through a journal, then that is ineffective. What that means is we have not actually made the minimum yearly repayment And that means we've got a shortfall and there would be an assessable deemed dividend. So there are really three steps in this. One is to declare the dividend and that is followed by the minute or the resolution being placed into the corporate register within one month of that decision. The second step is by 31 October, a distribution statement setting out the amount of the dividend, date, shareholder, franking credit, et cetera, would need to be provided to the shareholder. And then thirdly, at some point, the journal is recorded. We really have four points in time. We have the 30th of June before which we need to declare the dividend. Then we have the 31st of July, by which time we must have prepared the minute or resolution and must have placed it into the corporate register. Then we have the 31st of October, by which time we need to have distributed the distribution statement. And then at some point before preparing the tax return or lodging the tax return, we must have created the journal entry. That is correct. What happens, going through these four points in time, what happens if we don't do it in time? Of course, the journal entry doesn't matter because we can do it whenever. We just need to have done it before we lodge the tax return. Correct. So if we work backwards, so we've got the journal itself can be done at any time. It's whenever you sit down to do the financial statements. The distribution statement, that must be done by 31 October. Sorry. Yes, I did say 31 October, uh, within four months of year end. Now, if that date is not met, I would suggest it would be a penalty under the tax law for failure to provide the shareholder with the requisite documentation. 
Yes. So that is just a penalty. It doesn't make the journal entry invalid. Correct. Failure to comply with the 31 July deadline, that's the one month following the decision being made, that would be a Corporations Act issue and it would require um, perhaps an expert in corporations law to walk us through what are the penalties for failure to do so. But very broadly, it's a breach of the Corporations Act and there could be penalties imposed on the director or the company for failing to comply with 251 capital A. Okay, but it's still only a penalty. It doesn't make the dividend invalid. Correct. The problem is the 30 June one. If we don't declare the dividend validly, and that means looking at the process and the company constitution and following the requirements in the Corporations Act, if that is not declared validly, we have not got a liability that creates that mutual set-off which means we haven't got anything we can apply the minimum yearly repayment against. That means the payment hasn't been made. That means we have a Div 7A problem. Mm. And that means you'll have an assessable deemed dividend. And so for the 30th of June, two or more directors must actually have physically met or through Zoom, et cetera, must have met. And then the minute can be created later, but the actual meeting must have taken place before the 30th of June. That's if they hold a meeting, but if you've got two or more directors in a company, they can choose to make a decision without meeting. And that would can be that circulating resolution. Correct. Yeah, circular resolution. It just means then that both must have signed by the 30th of June. That's right. And if we just have a sole director, then they must have made the decision by the 30th of June. But of course, it's very difficult to actually document that. So then... Well, they would still prepare a resolution. It just only has one signature on it. So it's still yes. a resolution and that would need to be prepared by 31 July, but they would have had to have made the decision by 30 June. So how do you evidence that? The, the easiest way to remove all doubt is you just prepare your documentation on the day you make the decision. It's also worth noting there could be further breaches of the Tax Agent Services Act. So this is, of course, the code of professional conduct that applies to all tax agents. Now, if there was no dividend declared, and no distribution statement prepared until the journal was prepared. So let's say nine months after your end, we sit down and we realize that a minimum repayment should have been made and we put a journal through and prepare the dividend documentation, but we're doing it at the time of the journal and then purporting to backdate the dividend documentation to June 30 of the year just ended. That is problematic because backdating documentation is a fraudulent act. Now, the response by many of your listeners will be, well, everyone does it, or we've all seen it, or we've all done it at some point. What's the big deal? Yes, or the distribution statements or the minutes don't even have a date. Potentially that as well. So you can't indicate or, or get evidence of when they were made. Now, there may be this sense that what's the big deal? There's no loss of revenue here. But the fact remains that purporting that something happened at a time when it actually didn't is a fraudulent act. Now, it has been suggested that the law should be amended to allow you more time or to allow you to backdate. There isn't a court in the country that will allow anybody to backdate a document. It either was or was not signed at the time. So preparing something in November or February the next year and pretending that it was actually signed at an earlier point is a fraudulent act. And that could cause the agent to be breaching the code of professional conduct. And that has ramifications for them as a tax agent. Now, have I seen a lot of compliance activity on this? No. 
But if we go back to, by way of comparison, the trustee resolutions, you may recall Heidi prior to 2010 and the Bamford decision that went through the High Court, yes. it was very common practice for trustee resolutions to be prepared after year end, once people knew the figures and they were sitting down and doing the compliance work. And this practice was entrenched in the profession for more than four decades. But finally, when the Bamford decision went through the High Court, which addressed issues not specific to resolutions, it was more about whether income could be streamed and how we interpret provisions in Section 97. But what it did was shine a light on poor practice. And for the first time in many, many years, the ATO insisted that we do things correctly. And so there was a big push in 2010 and, and the years that followed to make sure that trustees correctly distributed their trust income by June 30, because a failure to do so means that the beneficiaries are not presently entitled and you can end up with uh, potential tax problems or default beneficiaries receiving distributions instead. Now, it took many years, but broadly the profession now accepts that that is the way we do things and a lot of firms that may have struggled with doing this by June 30 previously, they just accept that's the way it is. I feel like with these dividend declarations for companies, it's the same thing, but this is the poorer cousin, that the focus is on getting trustee resolutions done by June 30, but the same focus isn't on getting these dividend declarations done by June 30 for Div 7A purposes. Now, there may be an argument in retort that says, well, we don't know the amounts, and so how can we do it by June 30? My reply to that is you do know the amounts because we don't make repayments for these annual repayments for loans made in the current year. These are loans made in at least the previous year, if not earlier years. So we've already got a schedule mapped out for seven years that tells us exactly how much we have to pay each year. So we do know the amount. What we don't know is if the shareholder has already repaid other amounts to the company during the year. So to put some numbers on this. Let's say there was a minimum yearly repayment of $25,000. Now, in the simple world, the dividend would be declared for $25,000. We know how much has to be paid back, and that could all be done by June 30. In fact, it could be done back in you know, April, May. It doesn't have to be done on the last day of the year. It just has to be done by June 30. But what if during the year, the shareholder had already paid $5,000 back to the company? So of the $25,000 repayment, they've already paid five. So therefore, June 30, they only owe another $20,000. You, in that case, wouldn't declare a dividend for $25,000 because the shareholder would end up paying back $30,000 for the year. It's too much. It creates extra accessible income. So the challenge is not knowing how much the minimum yearly repayment is. The challenge is knowing whether any other amounts have already been paid back to the company during the year that can then allow us to reduce the amount of the dividend. Now, I would say in response to that, there are two approaches. Either undertake a detailed analysis prior to June 30, so you can identify that that $5,000 was paid back, say, in March during the year, and that means our dividend only has to be $20,000. Or if we are unable to undertake that process or we can't identify that payments were made during the year until after year end, you would have to stick with the $25,000. Now, what that would mean is if post-year end, we then realise that there was $5,000 extra paid back during the year, there is now a $30,000 repayment. 
Now, I concede that that ends up producing a little more assessable income in the dividend than may have been ideal, but the extra 5000 doesn't go to waste. What that means is the shareholders just pay back more principal than they needed to. And when you pay back more principal in a year than you needed to, it reduces the loan balance. So it recalibrates the loan. And in the remaining years in that term, so let's say this is year four, you've got three years left in the loan term, you are having to pay back less principal. So that means your repayments in future years are reduced and so is your interest. And that's the way it is. There are two options. You either correctly calculate repayments made during the year so you can accurately identify the amount of the dividend that's needed, or you just accept that you can't identify that readily, declare a dividend for the entire minimum yearly repayment, and if there are extra repayments, then it does count towards a principal reduction. What I've seen quite often with new clients is that the um, principal repayment starts on the 1st of July to basically already get the interest expense down for that year, but then that the interest is actually paid on the 30th of June. Does that make sense? Good practice? Uh, no, it doesn't really. So just to understand what you're saying, the minimum yearly repayment must be paid to the company each year by 30 June. Now, if we have a loan made in a given year, so let's say a loan was made during the 1920 income year, so March of 2020, then we would not have to make any repayment by June 30, 2020. We either repay the entire loan by the lodgement date of the 2020 tax return, and that clears out the whole loan, or by the lodgement date, we put in place a complying loan agreement. And our first repayment would not be due until June 30, 2021. The interest would start being calculated from the 1st of July, 2020. So the year the loan is made is interest-free, interest starts ticking from the first day of the following income year. So when you say the repayment or the principal starts 1 July, I'm not quite sure what you mean by that because our repayments are based on June 30 dates and the interest goes back to the 1st of July that year. Yes, it's basically when you are in the Division 7A calculator by the ATO and then you list the repayments that have taken place, then the repayments are usually dated back to the 1st of July to reduce the interest for the year. Yes, because any repayments you make during the year or any year are taken into account in working out your minimum yearly repayments. Exactly. And that's appropriate because you don't have to make the repayment on June 30. You can make it at any time during the year. Yes. If you declared the dividend on the 1st of July, you would reduce the interest for that year going forward. But of course, we then come back to the um, issue that it then actually needs to be properly documented and the resolution must have taken place on the 1st of July if this is how you book it and this is, and this is how you calculate it. Well, if you're going to do, and are you talking about a dividend on 1 July to clear out the entire loan or to make the minimum yearly repayment? Minimum yearly yep. repayment. So if it was 1 July, then you've actually got one month from the 1st of July to put that documentation into the corporate register. So yes, it would count towards your minimum yearly repayment or comprise the whole repayment, but you've still got your normal rules. Corporations Act, one month from that decision, although you'd still have till 31 October to do the distribution statement. So that would give you a period of, what, 16 months. What's happening with Division 7A? I, th I think it's been postponed again. 
It's a great question. Yes, we have had a very recent announcement to defer the reforms for the third time. So if we go back, I'm calling this now an eight-year saga. So if we go back to 2012, that was when the then Assistant Treasurer in a Labor government commissioned a review by the Board of Taxation of the Division 7A provisions. And the purpose of the review was to see, are they working effectively and how can they be improved? The board released its report around November of 2014. The report was publicly released around June of 2015, but it wasn't until May of 2016 that the government announced its response and said that they would reform the provisions with effect from 1 July 2018. That provided a two-year window, and we thought that was a reasonable period of time to design law and get it passed through Parliament. But in that two years, there was no action. And as a result, the government announced in the 2018 budget that the measures would be deferred to 1 July 2019. Then in October of 2018, the government through Treasury released a consultation paper setting out what it was proposing to do. And there have been a lot of concerns expressed by the profession as to the various measures that are being put forward in that discussion paper. The measures at that stage were due to commence 1 July 2019. But in the 2019 federal budget, the government deferred the measures for the second time to 1 July 2020. We got to obviously uh, 30 June 2020, um, COVID by this stage had kicked in. Um, The government had enormous challenges on its hands and Division 7A was looking very unlikely to commence on the 1st of July this year. We had no law and there'd been no further formal word from Treasury since October of 2018. So there was an announcement on June 30 this year, it was just seven hours before midnight, when they announced that they would defer the measures further. Now, this time round, we don't have a set date. So unlike the previous deferrals where they just pushed it out a year or two years as the case um, was originally, what they've said this time is that the legislation will start from the income year that follows royal assent of the amending law. Now, it's a sensible response because whilst it means we don't have a definite date, it means however long it takes to design this law and get it through Parliament, we would then have enacted law and then the measures would start the following 1 July. So it's linked to the enacted legislation as opposed to a set date that may have to change again in the future. So where we stand currently is that we are waiting for further information to be released by Treasury. We would expect a exposure draft legislation. Then if everyone agrees with that, there would be a bill introduced into Parliament and then eventually law. But uh, it's anybody's guess as to when we're going to see that and when we will see these changes. And of course, more importantly, what the changes will look like. So concerns about 10-year terms, about higher interest rates, 14-year amendment periods, what a self-correction mechanism would look like, and most importantly, the quarantined loans from prior to 4th of December 1997 and the quarantined unpaid present entitlements from prior to 16 December 2009, will all these be freshened up? So huge questions remaining over Div 7A and we watch keenly with interest into the, uh, the months and years ahead. What's the bottleneck? Because I don't think it's just COVID-19 because it was very quiet even before COVID-19 really raised its head in late February, in March. Even then it looked unlikely that Division 7A reform would come through on the 1st of July. What's the bottleneck? 
Why is it not coming through? Look, Heidi, I think the bottleneck has arisen from trying to determine the design of the rules. So Treasury came up with a model or a proposed approach to what they wanted to do at the end of 2018. Many in the profession, including the professional bodies, expressed concerns about what was contained in that discussion paper. One of the issues, for example, was that the Board of Taxation had recommended a model where a trust could make an irrevocable election to basically deny itself the CGT discount, but in exchange, it would be able to distribute to companies or receive loans from companies without a Division 7A issue. That was ignored by Treasury in the discussion paper. There are issues about what's going to happen with the old quarantine loans from prior to 4th of December 1997, or quarantined unpaid present entitlements from prior to 16 December 2009. So, I suggest the bottleneck without um, having any insights as to what's going on beyond what's publicly released, of course, is that there must be issues with the design of the rules. Either that or there are other priorities and with everything going on and, and okay, COVID's a more recent development, you're suggesting February, March, maybe they should have been looking at this, but the reality is we don't have any fine or determined rules in place at this point and we're still waiting for the fine print. Welcome back. So you have four things that need to happen to recognize a Division 7A dividend before 30th of June. You need a declaration of a dividend by 30th of June, filing the relevant minutes of resolution in the company register by 31st of July, issuing a dividend statement by the 31st of October, and then a journal entry at some point later. In this episode, Robin touched on the issue of Section 109T when you have a triangle set up where the receiver of the Division 7A loan is not the shareholder, but, for example, a separate trust. In the next episode, episode 261, we will discuss this in more detail and how to get around this issue. We will discuss this with Jeff Steen of Brown Wright Steen Lawyers in Sydney. Until then, thank you for listening and thank you to class for their support. Bye for now and see you in the next episode. There have been a number of awards coming your way, is that right? There was the Women in Finance Awards Thought Leader of the Year 2019, but more recently in 2020, I won the Australian Accounting Awards Thought Leader of the Year, and that was followed uh, a few minutes later by the Accountants Daily Excellence Award, which is the um, uh, the overall award, I guess, for the evening. So it's a, it's been a, a very honourable year, and I'm, I'm very pleased with them. Um, obviously the awards and, and very honoured to receive them, but also a reflection of the, the work I've been doing over the past few years. And then I was named in the Global Top 50 Women in Accounting for 2019. Who nominated you? How did this come about? I don't know who nominated me. Um, you never find that out, but it was um, an organisation, I believe, called Practice Ignition, and they somehow compiled this information and it involved, obviously, countries all around the world, but predominantly Canada, America, the UK, New Zealand and Australia, India as well. So a number of countries featured in that top 50. Very impressive.